After advertising for episode 13 of the Snow Files podcast, featuring Karen Ballinger Strong's testimony, we were sent this post from an anonymous person from Karen's Facebook page. Let's just get this out here straight and center. I was involved as a hearsay witness to a murder trial many, many years ago, and they are just now putting my testimony on a podcast, and I really don't give a fuck. Believe what you want and listen to what you want. This girl is no longer involved in that bullshit or the reason this man is in prison for the rest of his life. The Innocence Project has hassled me for years and asked me to change my testimony, and when I wouldn't, they got to blast me on a podcast. Still not changing my shit, so fuck the fuck off. We would like to make it clear that Jamie is being represented by the Exoneration Project, and they in no way have any control over the content nor the production of this podcast. The Snow Files podcast is solely managed by supporters for Jamie Snow. Having said that, Jamie would like to respond to Karen's post. What I want to do right now is comment on a recent post by Karen Strong uh, on Facebook characterizing, I guess, what what she thinks she did or what she says she did or, uh, you know, what she says we've done or we're, we're trying to do or whatever. You know, I don't want there to be any confusion about anything. And, I mean, that's what this this podcast is about. Nobody... Nobody gets to control the narrative anymore in the dark. It's all in the light. Karen said that we sent the exoneration project at her uh, and and, and all we wanted to do is recant, and that's a lie. First off, the exoneration project has been to see her two times. They've sent investigators out to talk to her two times, and both times she refused to talk to us. So I don't know how she assumed that we were looking for her to recant. I think it's pretty funny that she just automatically assumed we wanted her to recant. I think that probably comes from a guilty conscience. You know you lied, so we want you to recant. That's just me personally. That's what I think. But I really couldn't care less, to be honest with you, if Karen Strong ever recants. The truth is as clear as day. Now that we've gotten all the videotapes, the tape recording, all the the police reports and, and, and all the statements, you can put it together. It's clear as day she lied. You know, my jury would have known she lied had my lawyers not been incompetent the state hadn't withheld so much. I don't care if you ever recant, Karen. I even now, still today, want to give you the benefit of the doubt. You know, I want to believe that you weren't just this horrible, nasty person that didn't have anything better to do on a weekday than to go in and help these people take my, my life for something I didn't do. I, I want to believe that there was something else going on, that there was some way that they were putting pressure on you. Did you get in trouble and, and, and you were trying to work it out? Did they pay you to testify or did they promise you anything to testify? And uh, Or is it that, uh, you know, they dropped the, the charges against your, your husband in return for your your testimony. I just don't want to believe that you would do it just to be doing it. So that's one thing uh, that I want to clear up. I don't care if you recant. I just want to know why you did it. People people want to say, well, I was just a hearsay witness. I wasn't just a hearsay witness. 
weren't just a hearsay witness, Karen. You you got on the stand and you testified that I came to your house between the hours of 10 and midnight looking for a place to stay. You saw me with a ball cap on, which you had never said before to anybody uh, in any of your, your, your reports. And then all of a sudden you just, you know, conveniently come up with the ball cap description, which is what Danny Martinez says, you know, the, the suspect he claims he saw had on. And you, you saw the front of the car parked in your driveway. You know, and that was in a contradiction to what you said in the very beginning. So you weren't just a hearsay witness. The state's attorney argued in closing argument, how could Jamie have been at home with his wife and kids when he was at Karen Strong's house looking for a place to stay between the hours of 10 and midnight? So you weren't just some hearsay witness. And when we get to the hearsay testimony that you, you say Mark told you this and Mark told you that, I mean, who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe Mark, who has never changed his statement, even though, you know, they went to the prison he was in, put him in SAG, threatened to, you know, give him more time for obstruction of justice, put every screw to him that they could possibly put to him, and he stuck to the same statement all along. He said that all along, that he never saw me on Easter, that uh, I never came to his house looking for a place to stay that he never told you none of the stuff that you testified to, do we believe him or do we believe you, the person who we can we can lay it all out and we can see how your your story changed with the direction of the wind. As soon as the, the, the witness whisperer got in there and started whispering in your ear what he needed you to say, you went right along with it. So whatever gets you through the night, whatever helps you get through the day, uh, if you want to call yourself a hearsay witness or, or whatever, you know, you, you go ahead. But the, the truth is, you wasn't, in here, you wasn't a hearsay witness. You got up there and you helped these people take my life for something I didn't do. And, and you know you did. And someday, we hope that you'll, you'll just tell the truth. I mean, we know the truth. We just want to know why. Just tell us why you did it. And that's the reason for the podcast is so that all the truth. Everything that was done in the dark is now in the light. Nobody can lie about it anymore. Nobody gets to put their own narrative on, on what they did and, and, and what they didn't do and, 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 and what they want to say we want from them or anything like that. You know, this, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's something you should try. I, I need you to, to just sit down and just tell us the truth. You come on this podcast and tell your truth. That's all we're looking for. Karen, not that I'm, I'm asking you to recant. I'm just asking you to tell us the truth. You know, what was it that got you to do what you did? But at the end of the day, you have to live what you did. Just as much as I do. Injustice Anywhere presents Snowfire. The wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 13, Karen Calls the Cops, Karen Strong. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. The next person that I want to talk about is is someone who 
actually uh, kind of hurt me on a personal level uh, because I, I actually did know her. Karen Ballinger Strong was someone who I had known since I was probably 14, 15 years old. And I, I, I couldn't understand for a long time why uh, she did what she did. And, and Karen's testimony really, you know, wasn't her saying that I uh, had told her uh, that I committed the crime, but was that someone else told her I did it. And I, I couldn't understand for a long time why she did it. And Ray and Tammy, through filing um, all the Freedom of Information requests, I think found out what it was and why uh, she did what she did. In, in the beginning, the detectives and cats had, had contacted her, who you know is the, the witness whisperer. In her taped interview, you know, she says, you know, at some point in time in 1991, he came to my house looking for a place to stay, and I, I told him he couldn't stay, and, and he left. And, you know, she she was living with a, a good friend of mine, Mark McCown. She said, you know, I, I told him he couldn't stay, and, and him and Mark took off walking because they didn't, have, they didn't have a ride, they didn't have a car, so they took off walking. Mark wanted to hang out with his buddy, you know, they, you know, they had to leave and, and they took off walking is what she said. And, and it was a, it's a great, it's a great demonstration of how these detectives get these stories out of people because Katz was like, well, let me see if I can help you out here a little bit. You know, the crime happened in March and he was arrested at his sister's house in April. So... Would he have came to your house before the crime happened or after? And, you know, she, she uh, was like, oh, it, it would have been after. So, you know, in her first original statement to the police, she was like, you know, at some point in time in 1991, he came to my house, I wouldn't let him stay, blah, blah, blah. So then you fast forward to, you know, later on when she's going to the grand jury and, and, and she's given other taped interviews and, you know, now all of a sudden her story morphs into, he came to my house on the night of the murder, March 31st, 1991, he came to my house between the hours of 10 and midnight and was looking for a place to stay and he had on a ball cap and, and I told him he couldn't stay and, and she was able to see the the front of the car that we were in. So now we're, we have a car. You know, in the beginning, we didn't have a car. Now we've got a car, and it's not just sometime in 1991. She's narrowed it down to the hour, between the hours of 10 and midnight on on the night of the murder. You know, and it's I didn't know about this part of the story till later on after I'd been uh, convicted and I I got all the tape interviews and stuff and. Uh, you know, it's just amazing to me that these people's story just just changed in such a blatant manner, and, and my attorneys just kind of, you know, let it ride. Like I said, I I, I know that that uh, uh, Mark, her, her boyfriend, and my friend at, at the time, you know, did you know they had a uh, you know they broke up, and I, and, and I guess it wasn't a very uh, amicable. 
she was doing what she was doing in, in an effort to maybe get back at him or something, you know. But um, through the FOIA requests, we found out that her new husband had a bunch of uh, criminal charges pending, which just so happened to get dismissed uh, right after she testified. So it seems that when it came to the deals that were given, you know, that were being given out, I mean, I, I don't know why they didn't just take a, an ad out in the paper and say something along the lines of, if you'll, you know, if you'll testify against Snow, we'll give you a deal and we'll let you go. It's amazing to me that um, lightning in this case struck over and over and over and over again in the McLean County Courthouse when it came to the deals these people were getting. You know, it's it's just amazing to me that, that, that people don't see it. But, you know, Karen was someone who, it just, I, I couldn't believe that she stooped to the level that some of these other people stooped to. It was, and it's and still disappointing. It's just another one of the, the, uh, the witnesses. It's another uh, part of the case that doesn't add up. Absolutely clear uh, that they were telling her what to say. I mean, and that uh, that there was something given in return. And you know, this is the this is the evidence that's, that's keeping me from getting forensic testing. It's people like her that the McLean County State Attorney's Office have argued for all these years that you know the evidence is just so overwhelming that. No forensic testing would ever change it, and I think it's, it's disingenuous on their part to, to, to continue to argue that as the, the facts and the evidence come out. So Karen is another one that we have reached out to over and over over the years. My attorneys have reached out to her, and you know we've just reached out to her recently and asked her if she wanted to come on here and uh, explain and defend what she did. And so far, we haven't heard anything uh, uh, from her or out of her. So the refusal to me to answer you know, the allegations that are being made is basically uh, an adoption of the allegation. You know, I mean, if somebody was saying something about me that, that wasn't true, uh, and, and I knew that that's what they were doing, I would address it, you know, and, and the fact that she doesn't, Bruce doesn't, the rest of these people don't, you know, I think is, is evidence that uh, what we're saying is true. So the door's still open, Karen. You can uh, you can respond at any time. We'll, we'll absolutely put you on here and we'll let you state your piece. So come on with it. So you said that you knew Karen since y'all were 14 or 15, but she was always like, no, I didn't like Jamie Snow. He wasn't allowed in my house. He wasn't, you know, as if... Y'all never hung out together. Y'all never. Oh, uh, she's lying. You know, she's she's a total liar on that on that uh, on that front. I was always going. I was always at at, at uh, her and uh, and Stretch's house. You know, they had a house in Greenwood. Then they had a house. They had a house over on. Uh, yeah, where was that other place that they lived in? They they've together in a couple different places you know so you so you did spend the night at his house t- 
time, plenty of times, or you just went over there to hang out? Uh, I know that I, I know that I, I, you know, that I hung out with them all the time. I think I have spent the night there before, but, uh, yeah, we used to hang out all the time. We used to go, you know, we used to go to the, the Mackinac River together. We used to, you know, we used to hang out, you know, so when Karen did what she did, I mean, that just, I couldn't believe it. it you know, it just blew me away because, you know, I always thought that Karen had a much different level of, uh, you know, character. You know, Karen was always good people. You know, I liked her. And it just blew me away. I never could understand and I, I, I always wondered, was it because her and Mark had a, had a you know, a, a nasty breakup? And, you know, she just, she knew that, you know, me and Mark were really, really good friends. And she, um, she was just, you know, getting back at him by doing that. Or, or you know, or, or was it something else? And then when you and uh, Ray got the, the FOIA request and, and, and we see that uh, after uh, after she testified all these charges were dropped on her on her, on her new husband you know it's, it's I mean it's as clear as day what had happened guaranteed that's what happened they were giving everybody deals the first interview that we have of Karen is from June 6th 1999, with Detective Katz and Barkus. We know they met with her previously. We, we met at your trailer, mm-hmm. and while we were there, we had a brief conversation about if you had any information that you could share with us in reference to uh, William Little's death. Is that correct? Yeah. And what did you share with us? Then off the bat, she tells detectives that Stretch, Mark McCown, killed Jamie, and Susan Powell was the driver. She doesn't remember the month, but she knows it was in 1991. And could you tell me about when this conversation took place? Um, I don't know what month, but it was in 1991. Just kind of clarify things. He came home one day in 1991 and said that Jamie needs a place to stay? Yes. And why did he need a place to stay? Because he was hiding from the police. And that... Um, I asked him why he couldn't go, you know, to his own friends or his own family's house to stay, and he said because he was in a lot of trouble, and finally come out and told me that he had killed someone. Did he say what was used to kill William Little? A gun. Did he say what kind of gun? No. If he did, I don't remember. Did um, he just tell what kind of car? No. So you really haven't, he didn't give you any of the particulars? No, he just said that Jamie had killed the, the gas station attendant and that um, Susan was driving the car. Did you ask why he killed him? Yeah. Did he say? Over money. And that he could be identified. And Mark told you this? Mm-hmm. She knew it was warm out because they had to walk. They didn't have a car, and Stretch said something to her before his arrest in 1991 and after. They talked about it twice. So Stretch told her that Jamie committed murder 
and she never told police until this interview in 1999. I have nothing else, thank you. Well, I have one question. Prior to the day, mm-hmm. which is no second, 1999, has anybody ever talked to you about the shooting from the police? Has anybody, anybody from the police department talked to you about the shooting of William Miller Park Station no. on March 31st, 1999? No. This interview is concluded. This tactic was used before. Was there a prior police report or conversation with police that we don't know about? Karen goes on to testify at the grand jury in September of 1999. Recall in her interview a couple of months before, Karen stated that Mark asked her if Jamie could stay, and she didn't know what month, but it was sometime in 1991. This time she testifies that sometime between the crime and when Jamie was arrested, Jamie came to her apartment and asked to stay there for a few days before he went on to his sister's. Question. Do you know about when that conversation occurred? Answer. I'm not sure on the timeline, but it was before Jamie was arrested for the incident. Question. Now, what was the nature of that conversation you had with Mark about? Answer. He had told me that Jamie had killed someone. Question. You know how that conversation came up or what brought that up? Answer. Jamie had come to our apartment and wanted to know if he could stay there for a few days before going on to his sister's. Question. And basically at that time, did you learn or get the impression that Jamie was there on the run from something? Answer. Yes, I did. The state's attorney is clearly leading her into saying that Jamie was on the run. Question. So this all happened before he got arrested at his sister's in Missouri, is that correct? Answer, "Uh uh-huh. Question, was it after William Little was shot? Answer, yes. Question, at the Clark station? Answer, yes. Question, now did Mark have any other conversations with you then about Jamie shooting somebody? Answer, yeah. He said that Jamie shot him because Jamie knew that the kid could identify him. Question, Did he indicate that Jamie got out of it or what? In her grand jury testimony, Karen mentions that at the time of her testimony that she worked with Julie Knight and had known her for three or four years and that Julie had told her the same thing and also that Julie said that Susan Powell was driving the car and that she was there and she said there were other people in the car but she didn't say who. Lastly, Karen states that she did not see a vehicle. Question. Do you know how he got to your apartment? You didn't see whether he came in a car? Answer. No. Somebody brought him here, but I didn't see who it was. Question. You didn't see a vehicle even? Answer. No. By Miss Griffin. Anything else? No response. Stretch also testified at the grand jury. Stretch testified that he was not with Jamie or Susan on the night of the crime and that Jamie did not come to his house and ask if he could stay, that Jamie had never told him that he committed the crime. As far as we knew, the next instance of Karen was her testimony in the trial. But through Freedom of Information Act requests, we discovered wiretapped conversations from June of 2000. Recall in episode 12, when police pressured Bruce Rowland's wife Danielle to call Karen Strong, even though she didn't even know her. They told her to just strike up a conversation with her. But now we know that Danielle Rowland told her friend Stacy Soule that she would help her if Karen helps Danielle. 
Danielle called Stacy on 6-9-2000, but seems they had a previous understanding of the deal. Karen and Stacy both live in the trailer park. Dorothy is the manager. Apparently, Dorothy doesn't want Karen to have a dog at the trailer and is trying to get rid of it. Danielle is helping Stacy out by going over Dorothy's head to Joe, Dorothy's boss, to make Stacy the manager. If Stacy's the manager, Karen gets to keep her dog and all is well again in the trailer park. Danielle is working on all of this because she really needs to help her husband, Bruce, get new information for a murder trial before he talks to his lawyers again because the state is threatening Bruce with an extended sentence on multiple DUI charges. <sighs> so that's the deal. The deal on Jamie and his family's life is over Karen's dog, who's getting kicked out of a trailer park. Joe kind of has, an, I guess, you know, when I talk to him, he kind of has a slight idea that I, you know, he's doing a favor for me in turn, you're, you, and then Karen's doing a favor for, or in doing a favor for me for you, right. in turn, Karen doing a favor for, you know, back. Right. Danielle is desperate to make a deal and continues throughout the night to get in touch with Karen. Stacy asks again about Joe. What did he say about her being the manager of the trailer park? And should she go ahead with the petition? Then Stacy goes on to a long-winded story about the incidents at the trailer court, and Danielle reiterates the deal. Did we mention that Dan Donath is monitoring the calls? You know, the current Bloomington police chief, and signed by the Honorable Judge Bernardi, both Jamie and Susan's trial judge. This is Detective Dan Donath, and today's date is June 9th, night, or year 2000. The time now is approximately 1725 hours, and I'm here with Danielle Rowland, and we are going to be conducting an overhear signed by the Honorable Judge Bernardi, and we're going to be making a telephone call to number 820-1591, which is the residence of Stacy Soule, in an attempt to uh, speak with a Karen Ballinger. Stacy had mentioned your situation to me and uh, with the dog and Dorothy and so forth and I had told Stacy today that I went ahead and put the wheels in motion to take care of, you know, help you out. I went to him and, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk to him again this weekend um, and I kind of just, you know, I'm doing everything I can but I, I will, you know, help you the best I can on it, so... Um, and she says that you're willing to help me out here, so. In this accounting, Karen says that Stretch brought Jamie home to stay for a couple of nights. He even had brought Jamie to the house and left him outside because he knew I didn't like him. He wanted to know if he could stay for a couple of nights, and I said, no, no way. And then, um, Stretch said Jamie took off and went to his sister's in Missouri and proceeded to tell Karen what went on. Proceeded to tell me what went on. You know, he said that Jamie did something really bad and that cops were looking for him tough and that if they found him that he was you know, I'm going to go to prison for a very, very, very long time and um, come out and told me that that Jamie did do it and that, uh, what the fuck, what's her name? The Powell girl. Susan? Yeah. Susan Claycomb? Yeah. Was the one that was driving the car. And I told him, I said, that's, 
that's it. That's all I want to know. I don't even fucking want to know anymore. And uh, he told me that, well, see, when they questioned me, they wanted to know where Mark was on Easter Sunday. Right. And I said, well, you know, as far as I can remember, I said that was, what, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, whatever. Right. That, um, when we were together, we went to Easter dinner at his mom and dad. I said, and um, I said, I know that we were there to eat. I said, I couldn't tell you what time it was or none of that shit. You know, I don't have a photographic memory or anything. Right. And they wanted to know if, if when we went home, did Mark stay home? And I was like, I have no idea. I couldn't tell you. So you, oh, so you, because he, okay, I see what you're saying. So you didn't tell, you actually didn't say that, that, that Mark wasn't with him. You well, just. I, I, you know, I can't even remember. I know that Mark and I went to his mom because we did every Easter, you know. We were together for a year. But it's never clear when she's talking about. She eventually says the only thing Stretch told her is that Jamie shot somebody. He didn't tell her who and that eventually it just all fell together for her. But later in the interview, she does say that Stretch asked her if Jamie could stay because he was having problems with his wife. When Mark came in the apartment, he made Jamie stay outside. I know that that Jamie was in a car, but I don't know what kind of car. I don't know who was with him or anything else. And wanted to know if he said that him and Tammy were having problems because he spent the night, you know, stay a couple nights until things cooled down. And I said, no. Karen goes on to say that she's heard that Susan and Jamie made a pact. They both shot Bill Little, but Susan fired the fatal shot. But since they both shot him, they each couldn't tell on each other. She also talks about an interesting interview she had with the prosecuting state's attorney, who questioned her up and down. We've not seen any reports between Karen and the state's attorney. She then starts to relate Shane Talon's story and then Julie Knight's story. And again, she says that all Stretch told her was that Jamie was in trouble, had a fight with his wife, and needed a place to stay for a few days. She then starts relaying stories that Susan Little, Bill Little's sister, had told her. And she says that Dan Katz told her there were three people there. If you think that it's possible that Mark was there, is there any, you have any idea where he was when it happened? If he was in the car or standing outside the place or in the place? I, or? Don't, I don't know that either. And see, I've, I've heard that there was three people. Detective Katz even told me that there was three people. And that's why... Dan Katz did? Huh? Detective Katz did? Uh-huh. He said that there was, there was more than Susan and Jamie there. There is another person. See, the thing is, is that would I go, what you know, like if I give Bruce information and he has to go, goes with them, he, I gotta have, you know, he, he not that he says where he got it, but it's gotta be stuff that you know from Mark. See, Jamie is like, uh, didn't Jamie? Isn't he like your? Wasn't he like your guys' age? I mean, yours, Treggs went to school with your guys' era, right? Right. I didn't go to school with him, but yeah, he was. My age. Okay, so how how would he think that this kid, little kid, the little kid that got murdered, would would recognize him or know who he was? I don't know, unless he knew him. 
You don't, but you don't know if he knew him? I don't, yeah, you know, I don't know that. Good question, Danielle. We hear from Karen again on July 11, 2000. This time she did a videotaped interview, and her story became much more detailed. Uh, Detective Barkas and myself, Detective Katz. A while back, and during that conversation that we had, that's okay. At that time, uh, we talked about the Wendell homicide case mm-hmm. that occurred back in 1991. Yes. And you gave us a tape statement as to, at that time, what you can remember. Okay. And since we talked to you back in 1999, mm-hmm. you've testified in front of the grand jury. Yes. And you've had a lot of time to think about this. Mm-hmm. And you came back in today at our request. And we're here today to see if you remember anything else uh, about the case. Why don't you tell us what you remember about March 31st, 1991, which was Easter Sunday? Um, I remember uh, Mark and I went to his mother's for Easter dinner. And I, I'm guessing that we, you know, it was done, and our, you know, our eating was done by three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we were, we went home, and um, between, I'd say five and six o'clock, Mark, I'm guessing at this time, had left, left the house. Um, He was, I don't remember if he was with Jamie or not. I don't remember if, you know, if Jamie came and got him or if he met with Jamie or, you know, any, I don't remember that. Okay, let, let me stop and we'll go before you go too far. You had, shall we say, lunch, breakfast, brunch, some, some an early, early. early Easter get-together at Mark's parents' house. Yes. And you believe that you were finished eating by three o'clock, and, and you and Mark had gone back to your residence by around four o'clock. Right. Sometime between five and six o'clock that evening, Mark leaves the house. Yes. Now, is it possible that somebody picked him up? Yeah, that's possible. Did you or Mark have a car at that time? Mm-hmm. So Mark went outside but you don't know what happened to Mark after that. No. When was the next time you saw Mark on Easter Sunday? Later that evening between 10 and midnight. What were you doing when you next saw Mark? Sleeping. And what did Mark do? What were you sleeping at? In the bedroom. He, or in the front room. And he come in and woke me up and wanted to know if uh, Jamie could stay a couple days that he was in trouble and he needed a place to stay. And I said, no, absolutely not. Um, I got up to walk into the bedroom and through the back door I could see Jamie standing there um, with a car behind him. I couldn't see 
you know what kind of car. I just I could tell that there was a car back there. You could see the headlights. Um, Mark asked me again, you know, could he please stay? I said no, absolutely no way. And I went into the bedroom and laid down, went to bed. Mark stayed at your house. Yes. Did Jamie stay at your house? No. When Mark woke you up, did you ask Mark how he got home? Mm, I don't remember. I, I just assumed since there, you know, Jamie was outside and, and there was a car out there that Mark got a ride from him. Did Jamie have a driver's license at that time? I don't think so, but I don't have any idea. I don't, I don't think he ever had one, to be honest, but I don't know. Do you remember Mark telling you that a female had given them a ride? to your house that night? I'm not sure, but he, he could have. I'm not positive, but it, it could have been. Okay. When you saw Jamie standing at the back door of your house, do you remember what he was wearing? Um, I could see from the waist up, and he had a light-colored shirt and a ball cap on. I couldn't see from the waist down. So now she's got her story down pat, exactly what the police wanted her to say. She gave a detailed accounting of Stretch's timeline the entire night, put a vehicle at her home, put Jamie at her home, and gave a window of time for Stretch to be implicated. Never mind that it contradicts what she previously said. Even on the wiretaps, when she didn't know police were listening, she would go on to tell her final story at trial, pounding another nail into Jamie's coffin. Stretch again refuted her stories under tremendous pressure from police. Stretch was in jail at the time, and he claimed that Detective Katz brought him downstairs a few days prior to him testifying and asked him if he was going to plead the fifth. Stretch said he interpreted that as an intimidation tactic to discourage him from testifying. So why did Karen do it? We can only examine what we have discovered. Kevin had quite the record. On June 25, 1999, Kevin was charged with driving on revoked license two months after Karen testified in front of the grand jury. On November 24, 1999, Kevin had a plea hearing and received 12 months probation and fines. On January 7, 2000, Kevin was arrested for two counts of domestic battery and bodily harm, one count of domestic battery with physical contact, two counts of interfering with reporting of domestic violence, one count of criminal damage to property less than $300, and two counts of resisting and obstructing a police officer. On July 11, 2000, the exact same day as Karen's last interview with police, where she gave all of those new details, Kevin pled guilty to one count each of domestic battery, bodily harm, interfering with reporting of domestic violence, resisting, obstructing peace officer, correction employee. The rest of the charges were dropped and Kevin received 24 months probation for the remaining charges. Karen testified at Jamie's trial on January 9th and January 12th of 2001. On February 22nd, 2001, Kevin had another case for deceptive practices of writing a bad check. Jamie was sentenced on May 10th, 2001, and on June 6th, 2001, Kevin was arrested again for two counts of domestic battery with bodily harm and two counts of unlawful restraint. 
both felonies. All charges were dismissed. Coincidence? We don't think so. In 2009, a longtime friend of Karen's, Mark Huffington, submitted an affidavit stating they grew up together and called each other brother and sister. Huffington stated that he was locked up in 1991, and when he got out, he saw Karen all the time, and they had talked about Jamie's case all the time, and had several conversations in 1995 and 1996, and again in 1999. He said Karen told him that the night Bill Little was killed, Stretch came home and woke her up. That's all she knows about the case. She went on to tell Huffington that she and Stretch hadn't talked that night. He's sure if she knew anything about that case, she would have told him. They were very close. He said he was shocked when she later testified in the case because she had told him she didn't know anything about it. In 2010, Stretch submitted an affidavit affirming his testimony. He also stated that he heard Karen was working off a cocaine arrest and that she knows Mike Angelos was arrested for cocaine and that Karen was the only woman coming to his door to buy cocaine. We don't have any evidence that Karen was arrested for cocaine, but we did review Angela's record, and it's pretty interesting. On January 5th, 2001, Angelos had multiple counts of possession, up to 15 grams, resisting arrest, drug conspiracy for manufacturing and delivery of cocaine, manufacturing and delivery of cocaine, and manufacturing and delivery of other narcotics. All charges dismissed. He was only convicted on one count of manufacturing and delivering cocaine, and he received seven years. That shows you how much time he would have gotten had all those other charges not been dismissed. On January 19, 1999, the day Jamie's trial ended, he had a charge of resisting dismissed as well. On February 5, 2001, he had a driving on a suspended license with no insurance charge also dismissed. We don't know if this is related, but it's pretty interesting that Angelos is mentioned in Stretch's affidavit as being Karen's dealer, and he received those dream deals within a month of her testimony against Jamie. What many don't know is the police really wanted Stretch for this crime. So much so that after Jamie was convicted, but before he was sentenced, police offered Jamie 40 years if he would implicate Stretch in this crime. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about this case and about, you know, uh, Karen and, and all these other people that are involved, you know, these people were trying to throw Mark under the bus, too. His name was all through the discovery materials. You know, Karen was trying to throw him under the bus and make it look like he was involved in the case as well. You know, after I'd been convicted, but I was awaiting sentencing, a detective approached me in the hallway at the county jail. He was like, you know, look, we want McCowan. You know, we want him too. If you'll give us him, you know, the state attorney will agree on giving you 40 years. He said, uh, you know, that's 20 years, you're gonna do 50%. He said, you know, you're not gonna get to see your kids grow up. You know, right now you're not gonna get to see your kids grow up, but you'll be out in time. Uh, to see your grandkids grow up. And that is exactly what has happened. I mean, had I have done that, had I have jumped on the the BS bandwagon that, that was rolling in McLean County at the time, you know, and just threw Mark under the bus, I would have been out a year ago. 
but you know, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it, and it's, it's, it troubles me sometimes when I look at my hair getting gray, and and you know, I'm getting older, and I've got this life sentence for something I didn't do, and I stand here and I look out over the wall. You know, I can see over the wall from where I'm at. I can see cars driving down the street. You know, I could be on the other side of that wall living my life if I would have just traded Mark's life for mine. You know, I'm thankful that uh, I had the heart not to do that, you know, and I'm thankful that Susan had the heart not to do it, you know. I mean, it's it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, you know, that, uh, you know, you've traded your your life for the truth and you've traded your life for, you know, someone else's, you know, and I sometimes wish that I could be a scumbag like the rest of these people, you know, that did this to me. And, uh, but I just can't, I, I just can't do it. It's just not in my nature. You know, I hope that one of these days, some of these people like Karen will get up one morning and look at herself in the mirror and, you know, actually come to terms with what she did and, and just do the right thing. You know, it's never too late to do the right thing. I, t- I say that all the time. It's never too late to do the right thing. I think one of the things that kind of hurts me the most is that, you know, after I had this conversation with the detective in the hallway, you know, I went back to the, to the cell block that I was in and I hollered over and I told Mark exactly what had happened, you know, and exactly what was going on. And uh, I haven't heard from him since. I haven't heard a word from him. He hasn't reached out to me one time, you know, and I get it. He probably wants to distance himself as much as he can from something like this. But, you know, I mean, at some point in time, right has got to be right and wrong has got to be wrong, you know. And, and uh, you know, I still, to this day, wish him well. And he should probably get up every morning and get on his knees and thank God that he's not in a cell uh, in in this prison somewhere because uh, they sure did want to put him in here as well. And Karen tried to help him along the line with that. So that's the truth. All the rumors and, and everything else that goes on around Bloomington doesn't stand up to the truth. That's the truth. So there you go. Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Sam, Karen is a bit different than the other snitch girlfriends we've heard from before. In the past, the women's statements have been used to lend credibility to their boyfriend's lies. And they have only claimed to have overheard things. But with Karen, she knew Jamie. And her boyfriend always said she was lying. How did Karen get roped into this? Well, the first instance we have is of Marcus, and he just says they met at her trailer. That's the first interview in 1999. So they had met prior to that June 2nd, 1999 interview. We just don't know. Apparently that's not documented or we don't have it. The June 2nd, 1999 interview was conducted at the police station. It appears as if they reached out to her, though. I can only guess that's because of Mark 
They're really trying to get him on this as well. In fact, after Jamie was sentenced, police came to him in his cell and offered him 60 years if he would say Mark was with him. But Jamie said no, that he wouldn't do the same thing to Mark that everyone just did to him. Karen would testify in the grand jury in September of that same year. One key thing about her testimony, though, her grand jury testimony, is that she said that Mark and Jamie were walking and there was no car. She was asked specifically by a juror if there was a car, and she stated no. That would change later. At the grand jury, Karen said that both her boyfriend and Julie Knight told her the same thing, that Jamie killed the clerk for a small amount of money because he could identify him. But at trial, she never asked about Julie. Who is Julie Knight, and does she ever come up again in this case? Actually, yes. Julie testified in the grand jury and at Susan's trial. She testified that Susan dated her brother, Christopher Talon, and that Jamie used to live next door to her when he was four or five years old. She also testified that Susan had told her many times that she drove the getaway car and that Susan used to laugh about how Jamie got away with it. She talked about how intimidating Jamie was and how he was always such a macho guy. That just makes me laugh. She said Susan also mentioned that Jamie had murdered someone in Florida. It's been said by others that Julie was about to get her kids taken away from her, and that's why she testified. Also, her brother, Christopher Talon, who also testified, was in trouble as well. Their mother testified as well in the grand jury, so I guess it was a family affair. We have more info on this issue and may do, a, may do an episode on Julie Knight. Last week, we talked about the repeat DUI offender, Bruce Rowland, and how he and his wife got plea deals to flip on Jamie. Now we see that his wife, Danielle, helped to urge Karen to flip too. How was Danielle Rowland involved in all of this? Danielle was just trying to do everything she could to help Bruce with his impending sentence. Danielle stated that Karen Strong called her out of the blue and told her she was going to her ex-husband's place to buy drugs and that her kids had been there. She said she found out Bruce had been recording her calls and took the tapes down to the state's attorney's office to help with ending her kids' visitation with her ex-husband. But instead, Renard got eavesdropping orders. They knew she didn't know Karen, but they told her to come up with the reasons to call her, to strike up a conversation and grill her on the case. She said that they had yellow pads and were making notes to her to tell her what to say, asking her to ask to ask Karen where the gun was. The day after Jamie was convicted, but before he was sentenced, Danielle was arrested by detectives on an unrelated case, and they told her they held off on arresting her to make sure that Bruce cooperated with them at trial. It's really important to note that we did not have the overhears at the time this affidavit was given, and the information in the tapes corroborate what Danielle stated in her affidavit. And of course, that is all information we've received years later. Yep. Let's get into those wiretaps. The detectives really didn't get any information out of those wiretaps about the crime, but they obviously worked because the detail in Karen's story grew immensely after these calls. So what was the deal with these wiretaps? As just mentioned in June of 2000, a year after Karen gave her statement to the police, Danielle was coerced by detectives to make calls to Karen. 
And they have this wild scenario about Danielle going through Stacy to help Karen with the trailer park manager who was trying to get rid of Karen's dog. Danielle would then help Karen to keep her pit bull in the trailer park. If she in return told police the right stuff about Jamie, Danielle said she was protecting Bruce, who was meeting with his lawyer that week about his crimes. So after these calls, two weeks later, on July 11th, Karen is interviewed again. And this time she tells police that she's had a lot of time to mull it over since testifying to the grand jury. And she has more information to give now. Her new information is that Stretch told her all about Susan being the driver. And she even has to stop and ask the detectives what what her name is. She says, is that what the driver's name is? So this time she supposedly knows a lot of details about the actual crime. And she never told anyone before that Susan drove and waited outside for Jamie in the back of the store. They threw the gun off a spillway and that she had seen Susan driving Jamie around several times once even passing them on the highway and recognizing them. Jamie and Susan never even drove together, by the way. And she got the color of the car wrong, saying it was dark. While Stretch testified, he and Jamie had light-colored cars. She also speeds up the timing of the conversation with Stretch. At the grand jury, she said it was within a month of the crime. Now she says days. And that she broke up with Stretch within two weeks because they were arguing and she didn't like his friends especially Jamie. When gently questioned about these inconsistencies, she just can't remember. Interestingly, she ends her interview saying that she will keep racking her brain for more information and get back to them before trial. She was being overly helpful and cooperative here. Recall initially, she said this event happened sometime in 1991. Now, she says, she knows for sure it was Easter Sunday, 1991, knows where they went, remembers that Jamie was wearing a ball cap and a light-colored shirt, and that they left in a car. It's all very indicative of someone getting a plea deal, and we see the same behaviors with other snitches like Steve Scheel, who just agreed with the detective so he wouldn't have to go back to prison. And Ed Palumbo, who was heavily pursued by the detectives and started agreeing with their line of questioning so he didn't have to stay in prison. Both of these informants have since recanted, but not Karen. So once again, we have a textbook definition of detectives leading a witness. I mean, she even stops in the middle at one point to ask the name. Yeah, she That's amazing to me. I mean, it's how does this possibly get viewed as credible? Karen's new husband, Kevin, may have been involved in these deals as well. What do we know about Kevin? Well, Kevin did have charges. Kevin got a driving on revoke charge in June of 99, and he received 12 months probation. He was arrested in January of 2000 and charged with three counts of domestic battery, two counts of interfering with reporting of domestic violence, and one count of criminal damage to property, and also two counts of resisting arrest. On July 11th of 2000, when all was said and done, he was sentenced to 24 months of probation. Note, this is the same day, July 11th, 2000, that Karen was interviewed for a second time and she remembered all of those details. Kevin was also arrested in March 2000 for deceptive practices, but the sentence information isn't available And then finally, on June 6, 2001, Kevin was again arrested for two counts of domestic battery, 
second or more, and two counts of unlawful restraint. Both of those were felonies, and all of those charges were dismissed. I'm always shocked that so many of these people involved are all dealing with arrests. They're all in the in the system. We have girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands. Everybody's dealing with being arrested, and they all have their own problems to deal with. I know. It's like a huge shit show. What the hell is going on? Is there any girlfriend or boyfriend or husband that isn't in jail or being arrested? And they keep intertwining with each other. You know, they keep coming back. I don't know. It's just very interesting to me. I don't know what to make of that. It was a vicious circle of people, as Ray put it last episode. Exactly. I think he, yeah, I think he says that perfectly when he said that because everybody involved has their own shit to deal with. They're all doing something. They're all beating people up too. I mean, the charges are, you know, it's not like they're just getting in trouble. It's it's battery for or rape. It's terrible. Yeah, it is bad charges. I guess it's just and- a, like a, just a circle of people. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand it, but I'm waiting for one person that's totally clean. They don't testify because they don't lie. Right. That's why they're not involved. They're not looking for any deals, so they're not involved. Leslie, how did Karen's testimony play out in court? Her boyfriend, Stretch, testified against everything she said. What was that like? The most interesting things that Karen said at trial that were different than her original accounts were when these conversations with Stretch actually took place. She told police that Stretch asked if Jamie could stay over and hide out sometime in 1991. And her testimony at the grand jury was the same in 1999, that she wasn't sure about the timeline, but it had been some time before Jamie was arrested in April of that year for a different crime. But now all of a sudden at Jamie's trial, she tells the jury this new story. It's the same story that she just told detectives six months ago for the first time. She's saying that she can now remember that the conversation about Jamie needing a place to stay happened on Easter, the night of the crime. When defense attorney Frank Pitzel tries to point out how weird it is that she would have forgotten that it happened on Easter, considering she read about the shooting in the paper the next day, she covers for that and says, oh, she always knew that the conversation took place on Easter, but no one ever asked her, so she didn't give a specific date. But that's an absolute lie. She was asked at the grand jury flat out if she recalls when the conversation occurred, and she said she's unsure of the timeline. Frank did not pull out her testimony to hammer on this, and he backed off. On redirect, the prosecutor tries to cover for her and asks her if it's possible she didn't make the connection until later, that perhaps she always knew Jamie was at her house trying to stay there the night of the crime, but didn't know it was for the shooting until later. And Karen agrees to that, saying there was a second conversation in which her boyfriend Stretch told her more about the details, and that's when she figured it out. Stretch also took the stand next, and he refuted everything Karen said, saying he never even asked if Jamie could stay there, and Jamie never told him he robbed the Clark station, and neither did he. He also was a character witness for Ed Palumbo, saying he was a known liar and a braggart, and he refuted Bruce Rowland saying he was never at a party at the Whitmers that night, and he refuted jailhouse snitch Bill Moffat, stating that he was in jail with ample phone privileges, writing supplies, and access to guards every 30 minutes. Even when the prosecution came at him hard, he still insisted he never had any conversation with Karen or Jamie about Jamie's involvement in a robbery, and he never asked him to stay over. 
after his testimony, he does tell the court that he felt Detective Dan Katz was trying to intimidate him and discourage him from testifying by pulling him into a room a few days prior and asking him if he was going to testify or plea the fifth, insinuating that he would get himself in trouble for what he could say on the stand, so he better be careful. Dan Katz actually testified three days prior, and he was only asked about interviewing snitches Randy Howard and Kevin Shaw, crime scene witness Gerardo Gutierrez, and the naughty correction officer Mary Burns, but never anyone else, not even Karen. Pitzel only asked him about the composites and how he got to be in charge of the case after Crow retired, and that's literally it. Detective Rick Barkus wasn't even called to testify. It's just very alarming that there are all these inconsistencies in every snitch statement, and both these detectives led witnesses and intimidated them, and now we have one witness willing to testify to that fact, and they aren't even questioned about it at trial at all. This is all very interesting, and the dynamic with Karen and Stretch was really important, that they were both recalled to the stand just days later. What happened then? Karen was recalled to explain about what she knew the night of the crime, how that conversation differed from the others. She told the prosecutor all she knew the night of the crime was that Jamie was in trouble. She went on to tell Frank Pitzel that there were actually more than two conversations about Jamie's involvement. There were many, and actually three that were important, and she just didn't want to be involved, so she didn't tell anyone and left parts out when she did. Well, this was bad, so Prosecutor Tina Griffin jumped in and saved the ship. She coddled Karen on the stand and had her explain that she's so tired and scared something happened the night before to affect her mental state, and she's just having trouble remembering. And it was quite shameless. So Stretch came back, too, right after that. And this time, only the defense wanted to talk to him. And that's not surprising. I mean, why would Tina Griffin want to ask him any more questions about Karen? Frank had him refute Karen's new story that he told her Jamie was in a lot of trouble the night of the crime. And he got him to vehemently confirm again that he absolutely did not have that conversation with Karen. Stretch also told the jury about Karen's drug habit and said she still had a bad habit today. And I wish that Pitzel had been able to ask Karen about it herself and if she was ever in trouble for it. And I can't tell if it's because he wasn't allowed to or if because this was just an afterthought thrown in at the end. But it's very interesting that Stretch reports it again later in his 2010 affidavit, stating that he heard she was arrested for cocaine and he thinks she testified to work off that arrest. So he mentioned it on the stand in 2001 and then nine years later doubles down on it with more detail. So we have to ask if that was a possible motive for Karen's testimony against Jamie. Has Karen ever been contacted by Jamie's defense team and given the opportunity to come clean? What's happened with that since the trial in 2001? She has been contacted and she's refused to talk. You know, she's been contacted by Jamie's investigator. I contacted her and, you know, she blocked me. You know, she I, apparently she doesn't want to talk, but again, she is welcome to contact us, to reach out to us, and we'll happily have her on the podcast. And she can, you know, if she wants to refute anything that we've said, or she can contact us privately. And, you know, if she wants to talk to the investigator, 
that would be amazing because we'd love to hear from her. So one thing that I was thinking about was that it just kills me that Stretch took the stand and was credible and had the same story the entire time saying everything Karen said was absolutely untrue and he couldn't be shook. And the simplest explanation for why his story never changed and he was so adamant was because she was lying and he was telling the truth. And that's why he was unwavering. And that's the same that happened with Jamie when he testified for himself. He was unwavering and just said over and over again, it's not true. That never happened. But neither of them were believed by the jury. And we know for a fact that both of them are telling the truth because all these years later, we have all these affidavits where people admitted that they lied. So it just really strikes me that it was so hard for the jury to believe the simplest solution that the two who say the same thing over and over again and can't be shook are the ones who are liars. But the ones that you can believe are the ones wrapped in this huge web of lies with 12, 12 different people. And you have to do backflips to even understand their story. And, you know, it just makes me wonder if people like jurors just can't accept that some things that are brought into court are just blatant fabrications. And, you know, what's interesting, we talked just a few minutes ago about the affidavits. And, you know, Stretch was in trouble at that time. And they were coming to him. They were coming to him in, in, in jail. And they were doing the same tactics, using the same tactics that they did with the others. And he was like, no, he never said that to me. And he was not believed. And Mark Huffington, you know, in his affidavit, you know, was also like, Karen told me straight up, you know, she didn't know anything about it. She didn't remember anything about it. And they had talked about it several times. And they were good friends. Who's lying? The people that are getting the deals are pressured? Well, it's just like Occam's razor. The simplest thing is probably the most true. It's <laughs> well, you know, I guess we don't really even have to talk about that because unreasonable doubt just went completely out the window in this case, too. But, you know, I guess it'll just never stop boggling my mind, you know, why these principles were just so hard for the jury to believe. Leslie, I think you make really good points about, you know, testimony that's unwavering and then all the contradictions we see now. But I think we have to look closely and see how many of these contradictions have been noted after the trial, because there's been so much hard work done by Tammy and, and, and Ray and, and his attorneys to find all these contradictions after the trial. But we really need to see how many of those contradictions were known during the trial phase, because a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, in wrongful convictions, it comes out into the open later. And of course, as we see now, it takes decades to fix. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But I mean, Jamie was saying it all along. And I, you know, I, I guess it's just that his defense attorney didn't pay attention, didn't maybe didn't present it either. Um, Bingo. That's it. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't all, all of this information he could, you know, have, have, have gotten. It was a horrible defense. A horrible right. defense. All he ever did was say, did you see Jamie shoot Bill Little? <laughs> I mean, that was his big, you know, strategy. Oh, and then also, are you an honest and truthful person? Are you lying now or are you lying then? <laughs> That's his other yeah. classic. All of Pitzel's strategies. But that all goes to the point. I mean, he had a terrible defense. So all this stuff wasn't brought to light when it should have been brought to light. 
I also just wonder as like a juror, why is it so hard to believe somebody saying it didn't happen? It's a lie. And that's it over and over again. Why is that so hard? But yet they just get caught up in all the salaciousness of what all these other people are saying and the hostile witnesses and, you know, the girlfriends coming on and the prosecutor telling her story at the end. Um, I, I guess it was just really dramatics that made the difference here. This is my own personal opinion, um, but I do believe that juries want to believe in the justice system and they want to believe the prosecutors have it right. And I think that does lead to some biases. I, I think also that it was it was the volume of people. It was just the volume of people. People, you know, we know no, we know a lot more now than we knew then. Jurors, I hope, I hope they're getting more educated about this stuff. But I think we were talking about this on the page. Why did they need this many people to lie? Why, you know, because they didn't have any evidence. That was it. That's the whole reason. Because one one way to look at it is, wow, all these people couldn't be lying. And I think that's how the jury saw it. And also with the Danny Martinez and and Luna, you know, all that was presented to them was they were 100% sure it was Jamie. That's it. So that's what they saw. So the jury saying this and then all of these people, because they just eviscerated Jamie's character. So they're they're thinking, yeah, he probably was in there. Yeah, everybody was saying brag, 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 brag. So he's doing one and a half years, one and a half years on an obstruction of justice charge. And he's going to go to prison and tell everybody there that'll listen that he killed Bill Little, telling all of these convicts that he doesn't even know that he killed Bill Little. And there's a reward out. Everybody knows that. Jamie knew that they were after him for this crime at the time because he took a polygraph before he went to prison. And said, you know, are you going to if you if I pass this, are you going to leave me alone about it? And that was it. So he's going to take a polygraph. He's going to know there's a big reward out for this. And then he's going to go to prison on one and a half years and and tell everybody that he committed murder. That makes no sense at all. So they had to have all of these people together. It was a cumulative volume conviction. Well, Bruce, um, last week you were saying it might be a bad idea to have a police officer on the stand so that you could ask them questions about who they thought was lying and how their interviews went and things like that, because you never know what they're going to say. And, you know, I found that very interesting when I was going over Dan Katz's testimony for this episode, just trying to see, you know, well, was he asked about Karen or Stretch? And he wasn't at all. And then I noticed Rick Barkas was never even called. And then if we remember, Detective Crow was only asked selective questions that didn't even really matter about the investigation. So what do you think about that now? Um, do you have any insight into, you know, why would you not shred them and ask them about how these taped interviews went and all the leading? Right. I don't want to let Pitzel off the hook because we all know he was a piece of shit attorney. But the fact is... You know, it's defense 101. A defense attorney does not ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. And you can really get yourself into trouble if you start asking questions, literally go fishing 
to ask questions when you really don't know what the answers are going to be. So I think that defense attorneys do use caution there, but I really don't want to use that as a defense for Pitzel because he was terrible. They didn't have all of these tapes. So there was only, there was only 30 tapes, something like that given over. Now we have 70. Right. Just to get back to what Tam was saying about the volume of witnesses. I mean, Paul Cialino mentioned it in a previous episode. Ray mentioned it. Tam has mentioned it multiple times. When you don't have a real case, you just stack a whole bunch of witnesses up and overwhelm the jury. And that's exactly what we saw here. There's no credibility, but the information is overwhelming. And I think that's part of what we saw happen in this case. Yeah. So imagine you as a listener, you're now hearing, I don't know, what are we on? The eighth the eighth witness against Jamie saying, I heard this from so-and-so, you probably can't even remember their names. You probably can't even remember, oh, this one was the one who said he overheard something at the party. That was the girlfriend to that one. This is the one who said it when they were passing each other in the car. This one saw, (laughs) this Karen woman says she randomly saw him driving down the highway and she can tell who was in the driver's seat. Like you, you can't, you probably can't even keep up with all this. So I'm at, and we're telling you, yeah, we're giving you all the documents. We're taking over an hour to talk about every single one. So imagine how these jurors felt or even the judge, uh, you know, after one week, 40 people, you know, you listen to everything they say, none of their stories line up. But just as long as there's one or two sentences in there somewhere that says Jamie did it or Jamie was involved, that's all they needed. Yeah, that's all that stood out. We need these people to come forward and talk to us. And we need anybody that knows anything about this. These witnesses, where they were, we're going through timelines and we're going through where they said they were. You know, we need we need people to come forward and if they have any information about that to let us know. You know, Tam, as you and Leslie always say, everybody's always welcome to come here and talk to us. Yeah, or privately. I, I do look at people like Jamie. Uh, Jeff Havard's one of my favorite ones too, because I mean, they're unwavering. Their storylines have never changed. No matter how much has been thrown at them over the years, they refuse to change their story because what they're telling is the truth. You can tell the same story for 20 years and never be pressured into saying anything else or never be tricked or never be, you know, influenced to change one sentence. You're telling the truth. Well, I'll never forget on Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff when Jamie was first interviewed about a lie. Jamie just flat out says, that's a lie. That never happened. The whole thing never happened. Bob said, wow, so you're just going to say that whole conversation never happened. I'm surprised. I thought that you were, it was going to turn into a, he said, she said, oh, he said, you know, he twisted my words around. That's not really how it happened, but no, you're going to say that it never happened at all. And he said, yeah, it never happened. And, you know, that was the first time I ever heard a defendant myself, especially in one of these cases that you see on TV or on podcasts, just say, no, it never happened. It was a lie. And then it just kept going on and on and on and on, all down the list, all these different people. Nope, never happened. It was a lie. And it's just a lot easier to believe that now, to hear it, because it's just true. It didn't happen for any of these people. And that's a, that's a stark realization, because I remember when I started, I mean, it took me about like 10 years ago or whenever it was, about six months to go through all of this stuff, because I did it, yeah, everything we had at the time which was, we didn't have all of this information at the time, you know? So I'm sitting here, you know, reading the testimony and I'm like, 
you know, I mean, my God, you know, and Jamie's like, that didn't, that didn't happen. And we started filing FOIAs and I'll be damned if he wasn't right. You know, every single thing he said came true, came to fruition. It wasn't, it wasn't right. He was telling the truth, you know, and that's when you just start going, Jesus Christ, you know, this is fucked up. I mean, really, really, really fucked up. I, I just wanted to add that Tina Griffin said that when you guys were talking about the truth never changes, she used that. She said, she said the truth never changes. Of course, you know, they the, twisted against you. <laughs> but, and all of these people were lying. Now we know, you know, right. but she said that she had a lot of nerve. But if you look at all the people that, that they had, and then you're talking to Jamie early on when he first got involved, and you got 10, 12, 14, however many people he's talking about. And he tells you about each and every one of them. And then you do all the research and you get all the FOIA requests and you lay it all out and everything lines up with what Jamie said. That's impossible. There's no way that a liar could have laid all that out to you. It's not possible. So those are the things that I look at because there's no way that he could have spoken to you in the beginning, told you about all these people, and then all the research lines up to what to what he said. There's just no way for that to work unless he's telling the truth. That's an excellent point. I had not looked at it that way, but I mean, that he's is... not a genius. I mean, I'm sorry. He's a very intelligent guy, but he's, I mean, there's no way that he could right. possibly lay all that out. I mean, there's just no way for it to happen. Right. And the other thing is when I talk to Jamie about these people, a lot of the time he'll be like, imagine how I felt when, you know, she got up there and she said that, or they said that. And I just had to sit there and I'm like, yeah, it's just, you know, over and over again, you have to sit there and you can't take it and it's all lies. But I don't have to imagine how he felt anymore because I was watching the Chappelle show last weekend and they put on that episode where the, you know, this white banker all of a sudden gets a public defender and gets treated the way that poor people get treated in the criminal justice system. And they have him um, sitting at the table and Bill Burr plays the naughty detective who takes a stand against him. And he's like, yeah, the guy tried to stick his dog on me and we had to shoot the dog in the face. <laughs> and you see this white rich banker just sitting there. And he's like, that's not true, your honor. And the judge is like, you're a scumbag. You will shut up. And I was laughing at first, but then I was like, no. And then, the, and then Bill Burr pulls out like a pound of cocaine out of his jacket. And he's like, yeah, we found this. So I'm laughing, but then I'm like, no, that's exactly what happened to Jamie. And that's exactly how Jamie felt. Like, I can't laugh at this anymore. Um, a lot of times <laughs> comedy does relate to real life, unfortunately. Yeah, it real life. So I'll find that clip and put it on, <laughs> on our discussion. I remember page. that episode. I remember that. She Just one other point funny. about one other point about Jamie, too, when he was telling you his story early on. He had no idea what you were going to discover in all those requests, all those FOIA requests. There's no possibility that he would have known because he had never seen them. And everything he told you early on lined up with what you found. You know, it's not that it's not so much that, though. He said he said he's lying. You know, this is you're you're going to you know, you have to find this. You have to find this. I mean, he knew you can read it in his in his pleadings. You know, when when he has a letter that he wrote, a handwritten motion that he wrote to the judge after his sentencing, when he was trying to get rid of his lawyers. And and I swear to God, almost every everything in there, if not everything and more, has has 
come to fruition. He knew it because he knew who was testifying against him. And he knew like, you know, that can't be true. You need to go to this person. You need to go to this person and, and talk to them. You know, you need to, to get these records. You need to do this. I mean, he probably would have been better off defending himself. Right. He had no fear of research because he knew what the truth was. Right. That's, that's another great point. Yeah, that's really a powerful statement. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In episode 13, Karen called the cops and interfered with authorities by lying to put an innocent man behind bars. Some things never change, right? Karen knew Jamie. They got along. But eight years after the crime, she suddenly recalled a third-hand murder confession, told tales about how much she actually disliked Jamie, and then went to his trial to face off against her ex, Stretch, who refuted her entire story. When she got flustered under pressure, she said she was tired and upset. Karen's privilege served her well, and she was believed. Times are changing, though, and Karens are being exposed all over the country. This Karen has never come forward. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Karen wasn't the only woman to insert herself into this case. Gal pals Bridget and Julie made up a story about Jamie's wife confessing at a bar, and Julie even gossiped about a possible second murder. Both of those stories made it into court. How did Bridget Logston and Julie Knight get away with it? That's next time on Snow Files. <laughs>